Hi, my name is Jez. Um, I'm a member here at Grace Church. Um, Mike's not here this week, and so I am stepping in and I have the privilege and honour of proclaiming God's word to you this morning. Um, so that's wonderful. Shall we pray as we begin? Father God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that it's active and that you use it to change our hearts by our Holy Spirit. We pray this morning that we would see more of Jesus, that we would be changed, Lord, that you would satisfy our hearts as we see the gospel and know then how to live in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, well, absolutely no prizes for guessing who this guy is. Um, it's Iron Man, isn't it? It's Tony Stark, um, played by Robert Downey Jr., uh, probably the most popular out of all the Avengers superheroes. Now, if you've seen any of the Iron Man films, you'll know that Tony Stark is a man with some serious swagger. He's the uh, genius, billionaire, playboy, and philanthropist, lest we forget, and the guy has got it all. He's incredibly gifted. He works at the cutting edge of scientific progress, um, and he lives the high life with his fast cars and his expensive suits and his catchy one-liners. And, you know, when he's, when he's bored and he's got a free weekend, he also saves the world in a magic suit. Now, maybe unsurprisingly, Tony Stark is not really much of a team player. Uh, he's very much a Lone Ranger type of guy who likes to do his own thing. And so along with this comes a serious problem with authority. Um, his prestige and his gifts as a scientific genius make him not the sort of guy who naturally sits around and takes orders. And so he proves himself to be a nightmare to any authority figure who tries to sort of rein him in, even if that authority figure is Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> now, for the last few weeks, we've been going through 1 Peter, uh, a letter written by the Apostle Peter to a group of Christians all over what we would now call Turkey. And last week, we heard a lot about how the gospel means that Christians can hold their heads up high. As believers, we hold our heads up high because we have an amazing calling. Peter has talked about us being God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. These are remarkable terms, called to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus to the world around. Now, that carries with it some real prestige and real honour. Now, if that's what our identity is, serving Jesus as a holy people, then how then are we to relate to our authorities? Are we, gonna, you know, are we free to sort of do our own thing because we think we know better? Are we as Christians, given so much privilege, inevitably just going to be like a big group of mini Tony Starks? I mean, we're all surrounded by non-Christian authorities, and some of whom are perhaps better authorities than others. What should our attitude be toward them? Well, this is what Peter directly addresses in today's passage, and particularly reference, with reference to the state, and um, also with reference to masters or bosses. And I think we can sum up Peter's teaching here in uh, three phrases. Honour the state, honour your boss, and look to Jesus. So, honour the state then. How should Christians relate to their government? Well, let's look at the first thing that Peter says in verse 13 and 14. Look down in your Bibles again. 
verse 13 in the passage, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So the first thing that Peter says to these Christians is that they should submit. Now, there's a word that's going to get us all excited, isn't it? Submission. We love that. (laughs) Our culture's really big on submitting. Um, But for Peter, that is the, the, the driving force, the engine room, the controlling idea of how we should treat our authorities. We submit to them. That is, we honour and we respect them. Now, what's quite surprising about uh, this statement that Peter has made is that the Christians whom he was talking to were under Roman rule. Now, I don't know if you remember your history lessons from school, but you might remember that Romans weren't exactly keen on Christians. It wasn't an easy sort of society for Christians to live in. And whilst at the moment we weren't, we, we, we probably know that at this point Christians weren't being fed to the lions, it wasn't that bad in terms of state-sponsored persecution, but the air would still have been a bit tense, and Christians living in the Roman Empire would have still been really vulnerable. After all, Roman religion was polytheistic, they worshipped all sorts of different gods, and its views on God and spirituality were completely at odds with what the Bible taught, and completely at odds with what these minority group of Christians believed. But even so, The big idea here is that Christians are to live as obedient, law-abiding citizens, even amongst non-Christian governments. Now, this isn't really the stuff of political uprising, is it? Um, These are not words you're going to find in the Communist Manifesto or on a Public Enemy album. And it might have come as a bit of a shock to some of the original hearers who thought that they were free in the Gospel to rise above other authority. I mean, you hear this sort of sentiment around today sometimes. Now, when I was younger, um, I used to listen to uh, hip-hop and rap, you know, like most other white, vaguely middle-class schoolboys. And um, as you can imagine, some of the lyrics were quite anti-authoritarian. You'd hear phrases like, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. The implication being that if I answer to God, the main authority, I don't need to answer to you. But Peter is not on board with this sentiment at all. Let's read verses 15 to 17. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honour the king. Why should we submit? Well, we can sum it up like this. We're servants of God, and we don't live for ourselves, we live for others. As Christians, we live so that Jesus would be honoured, and that our neighbours would put their trust in him. That's the heartbeat of the Christian life, that's what it's all about. It's the whole reason we've been given the privileges that we've already talked about, this privilege of being a holy nation, called to declare God's excellencies to the world around us telling others about Jesus so that he might be cherished by more and more people. So how is this profound and glorious goal attained? Well, actually, it's through the very normal, ordinary means of us living good lives and being good citizens, above reproach so that critics don't have anything to say about us. Nothing to pull us up on. 
And so this includes submitting to our government. You see, going against authority can often be for selfish and self-asserting reasons. But that's not the Christian way. It's important we honour the state so it's visible to all around that we want to contribute to our society and that we're not just a bunch of self-centred religious nutters looking out for ourselves. And after all, Peter says himself that these governments, even the non-Christian ones, they're set up by God. They're institutions given by God to preserve some form of justice, however imperfectly. And so we should honour them. Okay, so we should submit to these governments, and we should submit to our state. What does that look like? Well, it means that we keep the law of the land. And this is crucial, even if we disagree with our government or its laws. You might not be a fan of the coalition government, or even you might not be a fan of our political system, the way it's set up and works. But that doesn't excuse you from doing what the law requires as a Christian. So, we keep the speed limit. We don't illegally download software or movies. We don't stretch the truth on forms so that we can claim more benefits or ensure a visa so we can keep working in this country. It doesn't matter if we think that we're taxed too much and our money, too much money is taken out of our earnings. We don't use that as an excuse to be dishonest in other forms. We do things by the book and we show respect and honour to institutions that God himself has set up even if we're not a fan of all that's required. The only exceptions are when the law requires us to do something that is expressly forbidden by God. So, for example, if we were commanded by the government um, not to meet as a church, that's not something that we could do. But otherwise, we keep the law so that we are seen to have integrity and so that our witness amongst outsiders is not tainted or hindered. Now, it's more about just keeping laws, though. Notice in verse 21, Peter says that we're to do good. So, we seek to better our society as civilians. We take part in our democracy. We learn about what political parties are standing for, and we vote. We think through what's best, not just for us, but for our neighbours in our communities. We show respect and honour to everyone, the passage says. God other believers, but also the emperor, the king, the state. Doing these things marks us out as people who serve others and don't serve ourselves. Now, of course, the simple command to submit to our government is not particularly glamorous, is it? Especially in our age, where disrespect for authority sort of comes as a standard. And we could be tempted to go against authority with the excuse of our freedom in the gospel. But Peter smacks that that down straight away in verse 16. Let's have a look. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Yes, we are free in the gospel. And we should live as though we're free. And that is, the gospel should be clear in our lives. We should have a visible hope to people around as they see us um, taking part in society. I hope that others don't have. But our freedom is not an excuse for selfishness. It's not an excuse for evil. Remember, those are the very things that bound us in the first place. And as we saw last week, things like the evil and selfishness are the sort of things that wage war against our soul. We don't want to give in to those things. They destroy us. We've been freed from them to be servants of God. 
And we serve him not by doing what we want, but by honouring our government for the sake of the gospel's reputation. So we honour the state, living good lives as good citizens. Secondly, honour your boss. Okay, let's look at the next section um, and read verse 18 to 21. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, I, I realise that straight away I have to sort of do a little bit of a tangent and sweep to the side to talk about the issue of um, slavery. Because some of you may have uh, followed that passage and sort of thought to yourself, hold on a minute. Peter seems to be expressly advocating slavery, an institution we all know as inherently evil, and yet he seems to not only condemn it, or not condemn it, but um, yeah, just not give it, he just seems completely on board with this awful institution. And it's true, Peter, in a sense, Peter does indeed tell Christian slaves that they should submit to their masters. So what is going on? Well, I have to be brief, and if you want to ask me more about this afterwards, feel free. Um, But here are sort of two quick points. Firstly, the Bible's fundamental teaching about the value and dignity of all people means that slavery is completely incompatible with the gospel. It's completely incompatible with what the Bible says. Now, philosophers, influential philosophers like Aristotle, taught that some men were naturally free and some were naturally slaves. That's just how it was. But the Bible instead teaches that all men are made in the image of God, all people, and are equal in dignity and worth. Therefore, to think that some people are inherently inferior to others um, and therefore can be owned or exploited is completely at odds with Christianity. And that's why it was Christians like William Wilberforce who were instrumental in ending the slave trade in this country. Secondly, you have to understand that in the context of the first century to which Peter is writing here, slavery was so widespread that any attempt to overthrow the system would have been futile, realistically. And not only futile, but dangerous. Now, in the Roman Empire, there had been a number of revolts and uprisings, servile wars. But every time that happened, the slaves were defeated, every rebel was executed by crucifixion, And even the slaves that weren't involved in the uprising were treated more harshly by their masters because they expected them to do another sort of insurrection. Now, the minority group of Christian slaves to whom Peter wrote wouldn't have had the chance at all of um, achieving societal change by themselves. They were already a minority. And more likely, they'd have just ended up losing their lives without achieving any sort of change in the the, uh, environment and society. So, instead of advising a suicidal mission, Peter gives much more practical guidance that enables them to live out the gospel in a less than ideal situation. And actually, the way that Peter um, teaches slaves and all Christians in this passage is a way that subtly subverts the ideas of slavery. It goes against it subtly, but without causing violence and unnecessary um, fallout and death. 
Well, that aside then, what does Peter tell slaves to do? Well, once again, he calls them to submit. Submit to their masters. Verse 18, with all respect. And get this, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now, slave masters in the first century could be pretty harsh if they wanted to be. Now, as it happens, most domestic slaves, that is the slaves that worked in homes, um, didn't quite have as rough a time as you might think. And slaves and their masters, it wasn't uncommon for them to actually have close relationships. But slaves had no rights. And if a master wanted to be cruel, there was no court of appeal for slaves who had been unjustly treated. A master could have a slave put to death for any reason or for no reason, and there'd have been no comeback. Slaves are always vulnerable. So given that, it's remarkable that Peter would tell these slaves to do their duties and to work honestly and respectfully, regardless of the moral character of their masters. Now this has real application for us. This room may not be full of slaves, but most of us work, most of us have bosses or tutors, and it speaks directly to us in terms of how we should treat them. And it really is where the rubber hits the road when it comes to authority as well, because we're not in the realm of the abstract anymore. We're not talking about the government, which is sort of you know, out there in the ether. We don't know what the government is in terms of we don't have to relate to a specific person. Our bosses are people we have to personally interact with um, almost every day. Now, this teaching, submitting to them, um, directly challenges our assumptions about respect and honour. You see, it's easy for us to work honestly and with integrity towards a good boss, isn't it? Dead easy. If you've got a supervisor or a manager at work who supports you and treats you well, um, then working hard, it's not really that much of a problem. Honouring a harsh boss, though, is entirely different. You might have a boss who is unfair. You might have a boss who's vindictive. A boss who likes to humiliate you or a boss who gives you all the sort of rubbish jobs. The, the type of boss whose power has sort of gone to their head. And uh, I think we've all come across people like that in our time. They're not uncommon. Now, if you suffer under a boss like that, the motivation to work honestly and with a good attitude completely drops, doesn't it? And, plus, we feel justified in dishonouring our boss some way because of their behaviour. We think like this, why should I be respectful when they're not respectful to me? Why should I be 100% honest in the way I work when they're not 100% honest with me? And so we find ways to gain consolation or even vengeance against our bosses. When I was um, in sixth form college, I worked in a certain department store in the centre of Manchester and uh, I had a supervisor who we'll call Jane and Jane was a fairly short, haggard-looking lady. Um, she sort of, she looked like she was in her 60s, but she was actually in her 40s. Um, so she seemed to be the sort of woman who'd had a lot of stress and stuff in her life. And she wasn't always the most helpful supervisor. I've got to, I'm not going to lie. Um, she, loved, she loved to sort of patronise those of us who are student age and speak to us like we were 10-year-olds. I distinctly remember times when she would... Um, sort of accused me of doing stuff that I clearly hadn't done wrong. Now, in terms of how I would treat her, 
or how we as a, a, a sort of workforce would treat her. Instantly, so easy, we would um, resort to gossiping about her behind her back, mocking her, taking the mick out of her. It just came naturally. And these are the sorts of things that we can easily do when we have a boss who doesn't treat us um, as well as they should do. We gossip about them behind their backs. Um, we mock them and insult them. We might even do so to their faces if we can get away with it. Or, you know, we might be a bit more covert about it. Maybe we sneak longer lunch breaks, and purposely be less productive at work, and all the while justifying ourselves because of the, uh, the mistreatment that we've suffered. But the gospel completely counters this. Peter says that we should always maintain high standards at work and show the respect due to our bosses, regardless of their moral worth. We're not to show respect and honour based on someone's worthiness. As Christians, our good deeds must be consistent. We must be passionate about goodness all the time. And someone else's sin does not justify ours. We honour everyone, especially our authorities, because that's what's right. Now, it doesn't mean we do them, and it doesn't always mean necessarily that we do whatever they say. But we do our duty as workers and show integrity in the way that we deal with people. Now, part of this, then, means that a Christian worker is called to bear up under unjust suffering. And this is what Peter tells the slaves in verse 19 to 20. Look down with me. Verse 19. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So rather than lashing out and trying to take vengeance or stealing from their masters, Peter tells the slaves that they should patiently endure the suffering they receive, conscious of God. And if they do, that this is commendable. Now, for us, um, this doesn't mean that if we're suffering at work, we shouldn't take um, any measures to sort of reduce that or to get out of a a bad situation. But you've got to remember that for the slaves in the first century, there wasn't a trade union movement. There wasn't a HR department that they could go to. And if they had a bad master, they were stuck with it. And for some of us, we might be in situations at work that we're just stuck with and we can't really do anything about it. And so the call for us in those situations is to patiently endure and not lose our integrity. The Romanian Christian um, Richard Wormbrandt put it like this, talking about his suffering at the hands of communists. He said, As they allowed no place for Jesus in their hearts, I decided that I would leave not the smallest place for Satan in mine. Say that again. As they allowed no place for Jesus in their hearts, I decided I would leave not the smallest place for Satan in mine. We might be treated by people who don't care about the gospel um, and treated unjustly and even horrendously, um, but that does not give us the excuse to um, act with any less than full gospel integrity. And a challenge for us then is to work particularly hard to stay honourable. Now this is hard. It's hard, but it's the extraordinary obedience that we as God's people are called to. Look at verse 20. If a slave gets a beating for doing wrong, it's not to anyone's credit. I mean, he's just getting what he deserves. That doesn't stand out or make us different if we at work are punished for things that we deserve because we did wrong. But if we do good and suffer, 
and endure it without, without sinning, without compromising, and without losing our integrity as workers, then that's extraordinary. And that's a great honour before God. Now, a big shock in the passage comes next. Because you might have thought that Christians having to deal with unjust suffering was a bit like a glitch in the matrix, an abnormality going against the grain of what normal Christian life looks like. That's not the case. Look carefully at those words in verse 21. Let's just read the verse together. So this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. Unjust suffering is a calling. It's not a coincidence. God calls his people to suffer unjustly. It's part of his game plan for us. Now, you may have heard this teaching before, um, but I think, I imagine for most of us, we don't really believe it. (laughs) And you can tell that by our reactions to when we suffer. If we suffer unjustly at work or somewhere else, our natural response is to question God, isn't it? Why me, God? Why have you done this to me? How did I deserve this? But should we be surprised when people mistreat us? No. In fact, it's something we should expect because we follow Jesus. Now, at this point, we need to spend some time focusing on Jesus and looking at Christ. You see, it's not enough for us to know that we should honour our bosses and our governments. And I can shout all sorts of imperatives and commands at you so I'm blue in the face, but that's not going to give us the power to do them. And even if you're pretty good at keeping rules, um, without the gospel fresh in your minds, the best that will happen is that you'll be quite a moral person, but not really have any real love towards people or towards God. So, in addition to honouring our bosses, in addition to honouring our governments, we look to Jesus. Let's read verses 21 to 25. So this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter reveals that the reason Christians are called to suffer is not for a laugh. It's not as if God enjoys just watching his people go through pain. But it's more profound than that. It's because Jesus suffered first. Peter describes Jesus as the example in whose steps we are to follow. So when we are mistreated, when we do suffer unjustly, Jesus is the one who we want to emulate. Now, when it comes to suffering injustice, Jesus wins. It doesn't doesn't get any worse than how, how Jesus suffered. The arrest and execution of Christ was the greatest act of injustice that this world has ever seen. For there, the Messiah was betrayed and tortured to death by people who he himself had created. The eternal Son, in whom the Father had delighted in for all eternity, the maker of the whole universe, was treated like the worst of criminals. And he wasn't just killed 
but he was mocked. He was spat at. All dignity was stripped from him. And then he was forced to endure the most barbaric uh, form of execution that was known to man, crucifixion. Now, if anyone had a reason to strike back somehow, to say something, to express some indignation, to show some retaliation, it was Jesus on that day. And you know what? I don't know about you, but I might have allowed him just one one expression of payback. You know, whilst whilst those people sneered at him, whilst they thrust a crown of thorns on his head, I'd have allowed allowed him one insult, maybe one single slap to the face of Caiaphas, just for the sheer wickedness of what they were doing. But Jesus refused. Instead, verse 22 to 23, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. There wasn't an atom of vengeance or retaliation in Jesus' body. He just withstood it. Rather than sin, rather than taint his spotless character just once by lashing out, he just took it. And verse 23, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Amidst a storm of corruption and injustice, Jesus left himself in the hands of the one who was just, his own father, and that was enough for him. Isn't that incredible? And remember, Jesus didn't have to do any of this. He willingly subjected himself to it for the sake of others. He allowed the greatest crime ever committed to occur against himself for the benefit of others, including some of the same people who were involved in his death. Now when you see that, just the the sheer unbridled selflessness of it, does it not move you? I mean, is there not a beauty to it that makes you think, man, that's... That's, that's living, that's, that's what I want to be like. To be that loving, to be that selfless, to be that passionate about goodness. Surely to be like that is better than lashing out. It's better than ceasing to do good just to gain some petty vengeance. When we suffer, Jesus is our example. It's more than that. You see, we don't just look at Jesus like we would look at Gandhi or Mother Teresa. We don't just admire him from afar without any sort of personal connection. He's not just someone who we want to be like. And Peter makes this point in the passage. Jesus didn't just suffer. Jesus didn't just suffer for others. Jesus suffered for you. Let's read verse 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When Jesus suffered the horror of the cross, he didn't do it for some group of people, like randomly out there somewhere. He did it for you. And as those cruel men drove the nails into his hands and feet, it was your sin that he was bearing. Our sin, our wickedness, our selfishness, our lack of love for God and others. And it's through his pain that our wounds have been healed, if you're a Christian. 
You've been freed from bondage, sin and selfishness because of Jesus' death. Friends, before our salvation, we were like sheep that had gone astray. We were lost. We were in darkness. We were captive to our sinful desires. We couldn't do anything else but be selfish and do evil and hurt others. And we were heading for judgment. But because Jesus died for us, we've been brought back to our shepherd. And we belong to him now. And what a shepherd he is. I hope you've been getting just a little glimpse of Jesus' glory this morning as we've read these verses. When we grasp all that Jesus has done for us in the Gospel, it changes us. We understand that it's better to live his way. It's actually better to submit to authority than to live rebelliously. It's actually better to endure unjust suffering rather than to retaliate or to seek vengeance. Our Saviour did these things and we follow him and we do the same things because we love him and we love his plan for the world and we want others to come into God's family. We want others to see the glory of Jesus and we know that that's how it's done. How great it is that by living like this, which all of us can do, it empowers all of us, not just the professionals. By doing all this, the world gets to see the glory of the Son of God. So are we mini Tony Starks? Well, no. Our calling as God's people doesn't make us rebels as much as it makes us lovers. Lovers of God and lovers of people. Willing to endure even unjust suffering in order to follow and bring glory to our awesome Messiah. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your example and your love. Thank you that in your actions, going to your death, Lord, we just saw perfect righteousness and goodness despite all the wickedness that was around you. And we thank you, Lord, that you lived so selflessly and with such a deep love that completely blows us away, Lord. Lord, we pray that your love would melt our hearts. Lord, for where we've been cold, please forgive us and change us by our Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, help us to look at you in the Gospel and help us to just be amazed and help us to want to serve you and be willing to end your suffering and know that even though it's not super glamorous, we should submit and want to submit to authorities so that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, Amen.